Welcome to Aspen Insight from the Aspen Institute. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenin. In Pakistan, women don't often leave their homes alone. The culture of Pakistan is such that you, a woman, if she's walking on the road, like just for a walk, everybody will stand and, you know, oogle and, you know, harass them and everything. The country's conservative culture keeps women indoors, but Karatulan Fatima is working to reshape gender norms. She was the first woman to join Pakistan's Air Force, and she's helping women connect with one another and get educated. Today she tells her story, and we hear from a Ugandan woman who's pushing boundaries for gender equality in her country. Both women are part of the Aspen Institute's New Voices Fellowship. Also, kids are capable of so much. We've seen it with teenagers around the country marching for tighter gun control after the Parkland, Florida school shooting. We'll introduce you to teenage changemakers in Philadelphia who are working to tackle problems like climate change and cyberbullying that they see in their own communities. But first, let's travel across the world. Two gutsy women in the developing world are part of the latest cohort of the Aspen Institute's New Voices Fellowship. Agnes Agoye and Karatulan Fatima are making strides towards gender equality. Equality between men and women varies across the globe. Uganda ranks 45th out of 144 countries worldwide. The score, from the latest Global Gender Gap Report, looks at women working, their educational progress, health and survival, and gains made in politics. Pakistan's score is near the bottom of the list, ranking only above Yemen. Let's start in Uganda. Agnes Egoye works for the government, training law enforcement officers to counter human trafficking. When I called her in early March, it was raining. Hello? I Skyped Agnes when it was nighttime for her in Uganda and morning for me in Colorado. Not even a minute into our conversation, she starts to laugh. Her joy is infectious. Thanks for doing this so late at night in Uganda. How are you? No, thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure. I'm fine. She lives in the tropics near the capital city of Kampala, and even though it's raining, she says it never gets cold. Agnes's positivity has helped in tough times. She grew up in the countryside. Her childhood is marred by one terrifying event. The brutal rebel group, the Lord's Resistance Army, showed up in her village. So one day, it just happened, we are playing, and all of a sudden the, the whole village was running. Neighbors escaped around them, but her father refused to leave. And then, just closely, we, we see the commanders now dragging my cousin's sister. The rebels were kidnapping unmarried virgins, and even though the girl was disguised as a married woman, her baggy clothing gave her away. The incident changed Agnes's father's mind. So seeing that, my father realizes, oh my goodness, because we are six girls and two boys, and he realizes He has these girls, and so he had to flee. He accepts, so we all run, you know, different directions. She ended up in an internally displaced people's camp at a Catholic mission. The experience shaped the trajectory of Agnes's life. The Lord's Resistance Army abducted children mostly. Boys became soldiers and girls sex slaves. Later, Agnes chose to research child abduction in graduate school. She knew it was her calling. You know, there are certain things that happen to us human beings when we are growing up. 
and some of those things remain ingrained in us. In her graduate research, she would travel to internally displaced people's camps in northern Uganda. Children taken by the rebels would end up there after being rescued by the military or escaping. These camps were not safe. Yes, I wouldn't tell my parents. <laughs> Whenever I went to northern Uganda, I wouldn't tell my parents because I, I knew they would tell me not to go. Agnes's journey to graduate school wasn't easy. As early as her first day of life, her gender was a scourge. Girls born in her village were seen as useless and not worthy of an education. Her parents, luckily, didn't believe that and sent her to school. The hurdles didn't stop in college. She remembers a professor telling her she wasn't qualified to research child abduction. And I had lived through stuff that I wanted to investigate. So I threw a tantrum in his office. <laughs> I'm sure I will never forget if he's still alive. <laughs> After school, she began to train people to counter human trafficking. Then she earned a Fulbright scholarship and studied in Minnesota. Later, she did research at Oxford. Then she returned to Uganda and took a job as the Deputy National Coordinator for Prevention of Trafficking in Persons. Forty million people around the world are enslaved, and 99 percent of them are women and girls. Agnes remembers rescuing a girl in Kampala late one night. And I drove and picked her up. By the time my mother and sister woke up in the morning, there was this, <laughs> this girl in the house. But they're kind of used to that. Agnes looked for a place for the girl to go. She had run away from an abusive forced marriage. After several days of fruitless searching, Agnes decided a center for survivors was needed in Kampala, so she organized the funds to build one. Agnes's drive to be a leader, at least at first, came from being told she couldn't do certain things because of her gender. If men go to university, I'll go to university. If men go to Harvard, I'll go to Harvard. If men drive a manual car, I'll drive a manual car, not automatic. I mean, it was that crazy. <laughs> if men are leaders, I'll be a leader. For Agnes, the combination of fighting human trafficking and shattering gender norms have led to impactful work. She's trained more than 2,000 law enforcement officers to counter abduction. The people that we work with are sort of inspirational by definition, which is wonderful. Andrew Quinn directs the New Voices Fellowship at the Aspen Institute. It's part of the Aspen Global Innovators Group. The 2018 class of fellows includes Agnes Igoye and 19 others who have equally amazing stories. Mohammed Sabir is a real-life slumdog millionaire who's an activist in the poorest community in Pakistan. He himself was a former street child who... Uh, essentially taught himself English by reading sort of scraps of newspapers that he got as he picked garbage uh, and is now trying to figure out a better and more formalized way to bring education services to the children in his community. Tlalang Mofakang is a South African medical doctor who's working to teach young people a positive message about love, sex, and health. In India, surgeon Junaid Nabi is working to bring medical assistance and logistical support to areas hit by natural disasters. And later on, we'll introduce you to a woman who's working on gender-inclusive development in Pakistan. Quinn says the fellow's personal narratives are critical to the work. Their stories are so important, and their stories often aren't uh, depicted in regular sort of media about, uh, about development. The goal of the New Voices Fellowship is to tell stories from the front lines of global development to a wider audience. To do this, the fellows spend a year in training. They learn to write newspaper articles, do TV interviews, and even work with the moth to sharpen their stage presence. 
The Moth holds live storytelling events and runs storytelling workshops. They also speak on the Aspen Ideas Festival stage. Growing up in a middle-class setting in Kenya, it was very easy to be content with the little that we had. And People fact, who have been doing sort of valiant work in the field all of a sudden are now able to tell those stories to people who make decisions about foreign aid funding, for instance, in the U.S. Congress, or who are thinking about new ways for the rich world and the developing world to interact to, uh, to bring us all to our common goal of a better life for all. It's time for my second Skype call across the world. Hello. Karatalan Fatima is in Rawalpindi, Pakistan. She's surrounded by green farmland fed by rainwater. As the project lead for Pakistan's Agency for Burana Areas Development, she works with farmers to build small ponds and dams. Strangely, the work, she says, prevents sometimes bloody conflict. She has been drawn to conflict prevention work since she saw her country crumble under the Taliban. I've seen Pakistan going from, you know, a a much better country to a country that was then facing bomb blasts every day. She lived through a bomb blast in her neighborhood. She saw loved ones killed, and she witnessed her father get shot by terrorists. I know how it feels to be in the position when you lose your, I, I don't know, when you not when you lose your life, but when you lose your loved ones and how it impacts families. Her desire to prevent conflict led her to the Pakistan Air Force. Her father served his country and she wanted to follow in his footsteps. But I was not a boy, I was a girl, and a girl could not go in the armed forces except being a doctor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Luckily the government changed its policy. Ten women were allowed to join the Air Force, including Kuratalin. At the military academy, men looked at them strangely, and the physical training almost broke her. She was stationed all over Pakistan. Then 9-11 happened. Bomb blasts destroyed buildings and killed people. Karatalin was regularly collecting dead bodies. She had a change of heart about her work. That was the time that really, you know, uh, made me see that, that although I love Air Force, I love serving there, but it was not a place where I was really going and connecting with the people people on the ground. She left the Air Force. She wanted to get people out of poverty and create positive peace. And so she turned to resolving the conflicts no one was paying attention to, communal disputes over water. So, I mean, I just thought that why not work on this, something that nobody wants to work on. In her role in Rawalpindi's agricultural areas, she's using GIS technology to map water disputes that often lead to debt and keep people in poverty. The data she gathers is reducing conflict. Karatalin is particularly proud of the work she's done for women. She created safe spaces for low-income women who couldn't leave the house without being harassed. These women began to meet with one another at school playgrounds. And we opened these spaces for women in the evening. Women were happy. She also created computer labs and started job training courses for women, often victims of domestic abuse, at shelters in Pakistan. Karatalin believes women can only progress in conservative countries like hers if they support one another. Women need women mentors, she says, who push the boundaries. Support each other. Just push and just make an example, set an example, and, and you know, give a hand to other women and take them with you. 
Back in 1999, she was in the first class of women to join the Pakistan Air Force. Now there are 300 women in that military division, but there's still work to be done. Women can't command units and aren't given preference for foreign training. Still, Karantalan sees more and more women taking on leadership roles, and the culture beginning to change in Pakistan. This year's Aspen New Voices class includes 20 amazing individuals from 12 countries. Read about them at newvoicesfellows.aspeninstitute.org. You can also find the link in our show notes. So, Marcy, you and I are both preparing to work at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. Are you ready for it? Getting there, Zach. The festival is perhaps the most high-profile event put on by the Aspen Institute. It's ten days of on-stage discussions on health, technology, global affairs, domestic politics, and more, held in Aspen, Colorado. One of my favorite ways to keep up with the festival is by listening to all of those talks on our other podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go. I listen that way too. I just finished the episode on how to tackle gun violence in Chicago. It's amazing what educational, governmental, and church leaders are doing to help the situation. You can find Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. It's also available on AspenIdeas.org. Enough about our sister podcast. Let's get back to Aspen Insight. Here's our next piece. So, Marcy, I got to spend the day recently with some really amazing high school students who are taking it upon themselves to tackle huge issues in their communities. Can I tell you about it? Yeah, please do. You were at the Aspen Challenge in Philadelphia, right? I don't know much about how the challenge works, so why don't you tell me about it? Yeah, so the Aspen Challenge is an Aspen Institute program that works with high school students in cities across the country to help them develop projects that address critical issues in their own communities, like poverty, nutrition, cyberbullying. The goal is to empower these young people to become leaders and inspire them to take action. And it's a competition, right? Yes, exactly. And it happens every year in two different cities. This year, that was Dallas, Texas, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I was. And in Philadelphia, teams from 17 different schools each developed a project, and they came together for one day where they had to present all the work that they've done to a panel of judges. And at the end of the day, a winner is announced. I was lucky enough to be in the room to hear all of the presentations. We spent the day in an auditorium on Drexel University's campus. That voice you just heard is Greg Corbin. He's the MC for the competition. Throughout the day, he keeps the show moving and gets the students' energy up with things like rap battles and dance competitions. Seventy-three people. We giving out prizes. Leading up to the competition, the teams of students have eight weeks to develop projects that address issues in their own communities, and then they have just five minutes to present their work to the judges. This team from the Mastery Charter School Simon Gratz campus, called Pause, developed a project that tackles generational poverty. Ninety-six percent of the Nicetown Tioga marginalized population is living in poverty. Pause is a nonprofit organization designed to disrupt the factors that lead to poverty. These students took a multi-generational approach to attack this issue. 
They designed classes for younger students to teach them about financial literacy and gave them career advice in the hope that one day they will have the tools necessary to move out of poverty. I talked to one of the students, Jameer, right after he got off stage. Poverty is something that has affected us all, and we've seen it as a prominent problem in Philadelphia, and we knew that this is something that we had to attack in order to move forth as a community and actually make change and prosper. Over the course of the morning, all of the schools get their time on stage to present. From the audience, I can tell that it's sometimes nerve-wracking for the students to be in front of the judges. a diverse team that helps us. But even though they're competitors, the other teams are always supportive. That helps us use art for, art for social change. This competition day isn't the first time that all of these schools are together. Long before they step on stage, all of the teams attend an opening forum, where they're first challenged to develop projects that take on all of these problems. Community leaders come and tell the students about these issues and then challenge them to develop projects. I challenge you to reimagine the use of the digital tools that often amplify bullying and hate and use them to instead create online spaces of support, respect, and acceptance. That was Randy Boyette with the Anti-Defamation League speaking to the students two months before the competition day challenging them to develop projects that confront cyberbullying. Hers was one of five challenges from that day. Other speakers asked the students to take on things like generational poverty, health and nutrition, climate change, and the school-to-prison pipeline. We chose Jane Gloding's challenge to use art as a way to bring awareness to our community about the school-to-prison pipeline and promote restorative justice over incarceration. Back at competition day, a team called Give Us Our Crowns from John Bartram High School walks onto the stage, each wearing a matching orange prison jumpsuit and a gold paper crown. This challenge resonated with us as members of a high school known for its notorious and dangerous climate. In fact, just last year, Bartram had 71 violent and nonviolent incidences within our school. Our slogan is coordination over incarceration. Give Us Our Crowns believes that if people see children that are educated in a restorative and enlightened environment, they would seek out more solutions to keep them out of jail instead of putting them in. The students on this team went to different schools and community institutions and held events to raise awareness about how the school-to-prison pipeline is affecting their young people. With each group, the students would fold paper cranes. According to Japanese folklore, if you fold a thousand paper cranes, you get one wish. Their wish is to eradicate the school-to-prison pipeline. At the end of the project, the team had made well over a thousand cranes and a website that documented all of their efforts. We take a break for lunch, and when we come back, the onstage portion of the day is over. In the lobby of the building, the students man exhibition stations that show off their work. The judges look over poster boards, photos, and other materials. As I'm walking around the exhibitions, a huge comic book table catches my eye, so I walk over. Students from Parkway Northwest High School for Peace and Social Justice are showing off their work, which focuses on creating safe spaces online. I asked Haley, the student who did the artwork, how the comic book ties into this. I thought it would be a great way to um, reach out to students and um, for the younger generation because maybe they can understand our art better. Their team, called Cyberbusters, focuses on educating younger students about the negative effects of cyberbullying. In addition to the comic book, they run seminars for middle school students to teach them about how their actions online can have real-life consequences. I talked to Michael, another member of the team. You would want for social media to be a place where you can be you and be accepted. Like, you know, you, I know you wouldn't want to post a picture and somebody like, comment, oh, you're ugly. Like, stuff like that, that 
that gets to a person. And it's a problem because nowadays, especially in this generation, that's a normal thing. And that's something that we want to change, that we need to change. After I leave the Cyberbusters table, I walk up to the students from Bartram High School, still in their orange jumpsuits they wore on stage. Their table is overflowing with hundreds of paper cranes. Now, why did you guys choose this challenge? Why did you choose the School to Prison Pipeline? Because the School to Prison Pipeline relates to us. I have been um, almost arrested before, and my second week at Bartram High School, because I was in a fight uh, due to my sexuality. I'm hoping that with this, like, we can just stop a lot of the fighting, stop a lot of the anger and stuff, and hope that, like, probably we can make a more calming way to calm people down and get everybody to come together. After the judges are finished seeing all of the exhibits, they go off to deliberate. The students get a suspenseful break, where they wait to find out the winner. Finally, the moment arrives. The students from Bartram High School will get to travel to Colorado this summer and present their work at the Aspen Ideas Festival. But win or lose, the students from all 16 schools each learned valuable skills throughout this process that they now carry with them. Usually when we see these problems, we don't really do nothing about it. We may talk about it, but we might not take initiative. And now like when I see things like, like social problems that's wrong with my friends and the people around me, I know to take initiative and I know to, to be the first person to take action. After the competition is over, I sat down with my colleague Zachary Epps. He lives in Philadelphia and works on the Aspen Challenge full-time as a program manager for our youth and engagement programs. We meet the day after the challenge in a hotel lobby across the street from where the event happened. For people who are not familiar at all with what the Aspen Challenge is, I know online, this is, this is what it says online, it, it provides inspiration, tools, and a platform for young people to design solutions to some of the most critical problems facing humanity. Mm -hmm. That's like a huge stated mission. And that's what it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so so yeah. how does that work? Yeah, and so, you know, what is amazing about this is that it's an authentic representation of what the Aspen Challenge is. And so from the beginning, we are invited to join a city uh, or partner with the city uh, this this year we launched in Dallas and we continued uh, year two here in Philadelphia and from the first start we meet with the superintendent to say hey how can this program be tailored to your city right of course we have a playbook and a curriculum but we want it to make sense for whatever school district we partner with and so we we meet with the district at the district level we ask for guidance in terms of school selection uh, so I have a unique perspective because last year I selected the schools from within the district. And so what that process sometimes looks like is an application, a statement of interest from the school to say, this is how we see Aspen Challenge um, uh, fitting with our school. It's a good match. This is the type of impact that it could have for our school. This is their uh, application. And these are two coaches 
that we feel would would facilitate this process effectively. We invite the coaches during orientation to say, this is how we think you should approach selecting students, right? Who are, who are the, the folks who desire to be change makers? And they're curious about who they are and how they fit in their world and, and the issues that they face. Um, and we're, we're very explicit about, um, you know, while you can have your captains of the football teams and your number one, two, three in your class, they shouldn't make up the entire team. Right. In some ways, we want this to be a catalyst, a spark uh, for youth who haven't been exposed to these types of uh, decision making and leadership roles. Let's plug them into issues that they face and, and have them decide. Can you think about so this is really, you know, we're talking about the school district, we're talking about the city. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really about the young people. Right. It's about the students. Can you think about mo- like what were some of the standout moments either this year or last year from the students that you saw either on stage or just in conversations that you had with them? So last year at the opening forum, I met a young man from Furness High School. And, you know, this is, you know, this young man um, who has a baritone voice that just pulls you in, very compelling from the start. Uh, but you could tell was shy, uh, was, was lacking confidence and, and was really um, sort of in the back of the room whenever he could. And so I'm saying, you know, talk to him, met him um, at the at eight weeks later at the competition day. You know, he was the person encouraging other teammates as they, you know, giving them the pat on the shoulder as they were forgetting their lines on the stage. Right. He was the person going to just about every single table throughout uh, the room. Pretty much anybody who left at the end of the day knew this, knew this young man. Um, and, you know, and that's just not anecdotal of what I observed. I spoke to him and I said, hey, you know, I, I'm how are you feeling? And he just sat me down and we talked for about 25 minutes about his really awareness and realization that he matters and he has value in in today, right? Not after he goes to college or whatever he does after high school or, you know, years down the line. Today, he can actually influence how others act. The winning team goes to Ideas Festival, Aspen Ideas Festival in the summertime, gets to present there What's that experience like for them? And then just on a bigger picture, what is going through this eight weeks? What do you think they get out of that? What do you see? So once they get to Aspen Ideas, uh, it's a week-long trip. And so they, they'll have, uh, at the competition, they present for five minutes. At Aspen Ideas Festival, they'll present for 10 minutes, right? So they can go more in depth into their work and their process in the eight weeks. Um, but also, we'll continue to support them over the next few weeks We'll have um, uh, multiple in-person touch points to, to support the next steps of their project, the immediate next steps of their project, refining the presentation as it develops um, and ensuring that they're prepared to speak to, you know, secretaries of transportation and prime ministers and sort of anyone who's in that room. Um, viewing them, right, the, the sort of folks who have official influence in their own organizations and so forth are looking to them as the global leaders on the same stage. I think, um, you know, especially now we're seeing young people taking the lead on big issues. I, you know, you think of the students in Parkland, Florida, really leading the national conversation about gun control. And there's so many examples of this. And, you know, you've dedicated your career to working with young people. What do you think that we can learn from actually giving young people a voice in these conversations? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, someone asked me, what is it about the youth that they're able to just readily take this platform and and do wonders and do amazing things? And I think, you know, 
the, the, the conditions are already there for them to fill these roles. We need to step aside. We need to realize that they're ready today, right? Like the students in Parkland. Uh, and, and really, like our mission says, create a platform for them to fill. Right. And so I think they're ready to take on these roles right there with their experience and knowledge uh, and, and just day to day experience. I'm a, I'm a very big advocate that, you know, policies and programs should be rooted in the lived experiences of those that it impacts. And I think that's what Aspen Challenge is. Right. And so um, they're showing us year after year that given the opportunity, given the, the, the resources and the tools and the inspiration, uh, they can do amazing things. And so I think. The conditions are there. We just need, as adults and, and as folks in these official capacities, we need to realize that. To learn more about the Aspen Challenge in Philadelphia, Dallas, and all of its partner cities, you can head to aspenchallenge.org. That's it for today's show. Help us out. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your review helps others find the podcast. And send us your thoughts on Twitter using hashtag Aspen Insight. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks to our colleagues in the Aspen New Voices Fellowship Program and the Aspen Challenge, which is part of the Youth and Engagement Programs. And a very special shout-out to the students and teachers from John Bartram High School, Parkway Northwest School for Peace and Social Justice, the Mastery Charter School Simon Gratz Campus, Lankenau High School, and all of the other schools in Philadelphia. Thank you all so much. I'm Marcy Grivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Thanks for listening.